Before our scripture reading, we are looking at Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verses 17 to 19. Yeah, you, um, you have the, your Bibles there in the pews if you, or in, on the chairs if uh, you do not have Bibles with you. You also find in one of the inserts uh, the, the scripture text as well with uh, blank space if you uh, want to take notes as well. So this is Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 19. Now, as, already, as we already know, today after the service, we're going to hold what we, our annual patriotic picnic. It's my first time. I'm excited about it. We're going to get to listen to uh, some great singing. We're going to sing ourselves and celebrate our country. And it's an appropriate thing to do as we approach our holiday of independence. So along with celebration at this time, it's also a good time to take stock of our times. Much has changed in 240 years. Indeed, as we know, much has changed over our own lifetime. And so with that in mind, again, let's look at this text. The Apostle Paul writes, Now this I say in testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now the Apostle Paul who is writing this he was given a particular commission by, by Christ to go forth out there with the gospel, take the gospel to the Gentiles. The Gentiles were non-Jews. Anyone who's not a Jew is a Gentile. And he presented a gospel, and he talks about this in Ephesians, that erased the distinction between Jew and Gentile. In Christ there is one man. And so in our text, again, now, as we come here, and he uses this term Gentiles, he's now using it to depict the old life of the Christians, whether they're Jew or or Gentile. And it it, it means the old self that is characterized by the life of, of these particular believers before they knew Christ. And so the rest of the text is a description of this old life of the Gentiles. And as we see, it's depicted negatively, to say the least. The Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And these are strong negative depictions of the Gentile life that that are being attributed to them. I mean, futility darkened, alienated, ignorance. And it gets harsher. He says that they're not in the state because of bad fortune, but because of their own obstinacy, of their own rebelliousness. The Gentiles' ignorance and their, their darkened mindset are due to the hardness of their heart. Just willful disobedience. And this, will, this rebellious spirit has led to them 
to go down this road of furthering callousness, this a downward spiral into immorality. So they become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, this is a sweeping indictment. These verses are saying that Gentiles, again, non-Jews who have, who have not embraced the gospel, that because they have hardened themselves against God, they have become ignorant of him. They have become callous to moral decency. So much so that they have given themselves over to indulging in every kind of sexual immorality. Now, does that mean that every Gentile is as bad as they could be? Well, well, no. Paul writes in Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. So the issue here is not that Gentiles are as bad as they can be, but that their way of thinking inevitably is going to lead along a path of immoral behavior. Now, there are degrees to this, of course. I mean, for every individual, for every society, there are different degrees of how far down the path anyone may go. But the point is, that's the direction where the darkened walk takes them. Now, is that an accurate assessment? Well, we're going to consider the matter of the context of our own country's culture. Now, let's take that phrase, due to the hard, hardness of heart. And Paul, again, he's referring to persons who have hardened their heart against following God. I remember once walking past a parked car with a bumper sticker, no God's no masters. Now that succinct phrase captures the thinking of the secular mindset. To have a God means to subject oneself to a master, to a higher authority, and that is precisely what the human spirit recoils against. I did it my way. That's a theme song of the human spirit, whether Frank Sinatra sings it or Elvis Presley sings it. Now, I think this is one perspective that secular people will agree on. They do not want a higher authority up there in the sky telling us what's right and what's wrong for us. I mean, even those who, who live you know, spiritual lives, who would describe themselves as spiritual, this is the line in the sand. For whatever divine being or force they ascribe to, they ascribe to it because they feel at peace with whatever it tells them to do. There are no inconvenient commands to adhere to. They are free to follow their own path. Now, our scriptures text, the point of it is this. If you're going to establish a ground rule that you do not take orders from God, well, then you're going to be ignorant of God. It's a very simple principle. If I do not listen to you, I cannot know you. I cannot understand you. And if I refuse to follow your directions, well, I, 
I cannot experience what it is that you know. I mean, coaches, they're always harping on this. They're trying to get their athletes to buy into their system of training or or the game plan, and the athlete complains, well, you know, why am I having to do this? This is dumb. And the coach replies, trust me. Do what I say, and it will come together for you. And then you will understand. Sometimes the athlete gives up and, and never does understand. Others stay with it. And over time, they'll say, I get it now. I understand what it is that you know. And so the difference remaining ignorant and gaining knowledge is choosing to submit the very thing that the secular mindset refuses to do. So what does the Gentile do? Well, he follows the course that he himself lays out. And he borrows. He borrows from what he sees around him. He kind of likes this ethic or this value over here or or this teaching he saw. More often than not, it's what he saw on TV or in in the movies. And, And anything about freedom, that's good. Anything that affirms that, that he is good. And you just need to find the good within you. That's a good thing to believe. There needs to be some code to follow. And so again, he'll pick from a number of sources what seem workable, what seems reasonable enough to get along by. And so, for example, let's say he, you know, he has a do-good bit. You know, they're just people who are just good. Okay? And so he might embrace some causes. Now, if that's not his thing, then his life is pretty much restricted to well, just doing whatever seems pleasurable uh, for the moment. Maybe he's ambitious. He wants to make a name for himself. Maybe he or she is, you know, is kind of a low-key person who just wants, just wants to take it easy in life. Maybe the individual is religious, likes doing religious things, you know, likes going to a church and, you know, and all those kinds of things that religious people do. Whatever it is that he or she does, they do it because it suits them. And most importantly, whatever they do, they do it their way. They are their own person. They determine their own course. Now again, our scripture text contends this. If you follow your own course, it will lead you to a less moral life. It certainly will lead a society to head in that direction. And most individuals who think that they are living their own individual life, in most cases they are following the course, the leading of their society. Now the Christian, how do we approach morality or ethics? Well, we do not kill our neighbor when we are upset because Scripture commands us not to do so. We do not commit adultery for the same reason. I mean, We might reason out and we can explain why it is not good to kill your neighbor or not to commit uh, or to be unfaithful to one's spouse. We might might point that there's a, a natural code that's embedded in us. But ultimately, it is it is scripture. Because we believe scripture reveals God's will, that's our authority. 
when it ultimately comes to a moral code. Again, the worldly mindset, they don't have that. They have no outside objective code. All that they have is is the mind to reason with. But even more influential than the mind, I mean, they can say this is reasoning and, and I'm thinking this out. What really matters is the heart. That's what our society upholds above all other guides as to what is right. Follow your heart. You alone can judge what is right for you. You must do what feels right for you. And so then he puts together his own code, making a decision based on what feels right. Now we can follow this line of thought in many aspects to the moral code. Just, we just looked at this text. The text is sad to us. The way of individuals, the way of society, when they don't have a Christ in their hearts, when they're not following the scriptures, they're going to go a certain way, a negative way. And we're going to apply that again to our country. But what our, where our text takes us to is to the area of sexual morality. And there is no area, I'm sure, where Christians and the Gentile, the secular mindset, so clearly differ uh, as to what is acceptable. Now, I mean, most of our neighbors, if you talk with them, I mean, we all agree that we should not be mean. We should not cheat. Uh, we shouldn't lie for the most part. But our views on this subject, on sexual morality, are at best laughable to them. Indeed, they regard our code, the sexual intimacy is reserved for a husband and a wife as immoral and psychologically harmful to anyone who possesses it. Remember a number of years ago in my previous church, a bride-to-be was not a member of the church. It was a beautiful sanctuary, so we always had people wanting to get married there. She came to me with her mother, wanting to be, wanted to have a wedding, and she let me know, first of all, that she and her family were lifelong Presbyterians. And she was marrying someone whom um, she had been dating for a long time. They thought now is the time to, for marriage, and so they had moved in together. We're living with each other and now planning for the wedding. And what's happened here is that society's morals have so changed that here we go, we have someone outside of a church who uh, no longer adhering to scriptural authority is completely unaware that there's even a difference of opinion on the subject of premarital sex. So they have a young woman sitting beside her mother, speaking to me as a minister about living together with her boyfriend, and they're oblivious completely oblivious that I might see anything wrong with this situation. So when it comes to sexual morality, the Gentiles have moved away from, so far away from even appealing to the heart of saying, you know, it's, it's about love. They just call it human instinct. It's natural desire. Indeed, no, it's natural need to have physical pleasure. And so, indeed, human sensuality, again, it's just moved out of the moral realm altogether. 
It's not even in that area. The only thing that really distinguishes individuals is the same thing that might distinguish what kind of food we like to eat or like to have. That's the same thing here. Some people want a connection with love. Others do not. Some prefer heterosexual. Some do not. Some want one partner. Some do not. Chastity is considered to be practiced well by people who struggle mentally or emotionally with inhibition. It's just not a healthy thing for a normal good person in our society. That's the way it is. That's the direction the sexual mores will always take if there is no divine authority. When there's no revelation as to what constitutes moral righteousness, the boundaries of what is right and wrong, particularly in sexual matters, just grows wider and wider. So that finally, those who hold to restrictions in this, who say there are boundaries, well, they are the ones who are being pushed out of our society of having acceptable views. Now, again, this is being borne out in our country. In our lifetime, we have seen a progression, maybe a regression, in sexual attitudes. Before the 1960s, the Judeo-Christian ethic of reserving physical relations until a marriage was the accepted code. I mean, of course, there's always those who flaunted it, those who went behind the scenes, but still it was the official stance, the public stance, was this of traditional moral ethics. Now, the 60s come, ushering in the so-called sexual revolution. And it's a revolution that gained ground throughout the 70s so that somewhere in the 80s, it turned into a complete victory. So, you know, again, that example that I gave. Good, normal people, the accepted code of our society, live together before marriage. That's what they do. It's a natural conduct for healthy persons. It's the reasonable conduct for anyone preparing for marriage. I remember another couple coming to me, and they were members of my church. And I asked them, a question I always ask, well, how do your parents feel about y'all getting married? And they kind of looked at each other sheepishly, and oh, goodness, what are you going to say? Well, our parents like, you know, each other, but um, they wish we would live together for a while first. That, that's when I realize the revolution is over, when the kids are, are breaking their parents' standards by refusing to live together. So not to, again, to engage in physical relations, it indicates, it really indicates to our neighbors there's something wrong with us. Not immoral about it, it's just, is something wrong with us emotionally or mentally, or are we just one of those who adhere to a very rigid and prudish belief system? Again, before the 60s, being a practicing Christian was respected to a degree. I mean, even if we're considered odd, Maybe this person's a little bit overly religious or whatever, a bit old-fashioned. Still, there was some respect. After the 70s, a practicing Christian might have some respect, you know, for someone who's into that kind of thing. 
But now, as we are moving into the teens of the 2001 millennium, we find that the Gentile moral code is is pushing back more boundaries, keeps pushing it more back until just this past Friday to where now it has endorsed and embraced same-sex marriage. And this last step here, what it's doing for us, finalized by the Supreme Court, is taking us into a new state of relations. I mean in terms of the Christian, the professing Christian, and those who are not. A relationship that has not existed before. What I mean by this is, look, as the sexual revolution advanced and it settled into the accepted code of the land, Christians who kept their moral stance lost their standing of respect. We might be ignored. We might be ridiculed. Now, with the advent of same-sex marriage, we face outright hostility so that our moral stance and we are being attacked. Gordon College, uh, up in Massachusetts, Christian school, had signed a letter when the, that bill had been, well, not a bill had been passed, when the federal government or White House had demanded that all institutions accept, endorse uh, the same-sex lifestyle. And so they had signed a, a letter with other Christian schools to be exempt from this mandate of having to accept this for their employees. Well, when the city of Salem heard about this, read about it, they'd been leasing facilities to that college to use for classes. They cut them off. They uh, took back the contract and will not allow them to meet in that sitting. In states that have approved same-sex marriage, business owners, such as florists, bakers, or photographers, anyone doing wedding venues, they have already been fined, sued, forced into bankruptcy for refusing to provide their services for such weddings. So what same-sex marriage has done that the previous changes in sexual behavior did not do is to recast the subject into civil rights. And thus, it's no no longer a matter in our today of saying, live and let live, but endorse or lose your job or lose your business. And so the Atlantis fire chief is fired for writing a self-published book for Christian men includes a couple of paragraphs uh, on his view of homosexuality. The head of Mozilla, that Firefox thing and whatever you call it, is fired because he made a donation to a bill to ban same-sex marriage. The sports announcer, James Craig, is fired from Fox Sports. Because before he was hired, it was found out that when he was running for office, he had expressed opposition to the gay lifestyle. And when they found out, they fired him. Now, these stories are going to only grow exponentially with the Supreme Court's decision. Now, it might seem like, and as, as it just seemed like an innocent thing, is saying, look, it cannot be banned by states what's already being demonstrated in states that have legalized a practice is that all businesses, 
All individuals who service weddings in some manner must service same-sex marriages regardless of your belief system, or you will be fined, or you will be closed down. Even simply holding the viewpoint, whether or not you have anything to do with weddings, if you just simply hold the viewpoint that same-sex marriage is not right, it has already cost jobs. It is becoming and will become increasingly the litmus test for hiring, for promotion, or keeping one's job, especially in management positions. The times are changing. But not only in the area of sexual mores, the mere expression of religious beliefs is under scrutiny. Cases of suppression, or at least trying to suppress, appear in the news regularly, whether it be in the government, business, schools, or military. One has to be very careful in expressing religious views or displaying religious symbols or having a Bible on your desk. Especially, one must be careful if you feel a burden to share the gospel with someone. There's a growing effort in our country to shut up religious expression, to keep it from public displaying and public discussion. Now again, look, there's nothing new to having people, indeed the majority, majority who, who might be cold, who might be indifferent to the Christian faith, But in recent years, we're witnessing a zealous campaign of disdain against any religious belief. And authors are becoming rich, writing bestsellers, attacking the religious belief with vigor that, I mean, matches any of our evangelistic zeal. But all of these changes in mores and values, as our scripture text would say, That's the logical proceeding of a society that will not adhere to the Judeo-Christian belief system. Ties have been cut. And we have to face the fact that the ship of the United States is drifting from its Christian foundations. Whatever you you want to say, whether it's a Christian country, you didn't think it was a Christian country, whatever, it's drifting away, just as the European countries have done before us. And then, let's add more to the table here. There is the actual war declared by ISIS. And here we have an Islamic movement that has picked up the mantle that was dropped in the medieval times when Islam spread through literal warfare. And that is its original intent of seeing that its form of pure Islam established throughout the globe. In its zeal for its cause, it is unmatched by any other terrorist group. I mean, would other terrorists are just trying to win, so they say, justice for their people or take care of their own land. ISIS has the same intent of the original Islamic movement to spread it throughout this globe and mandate it for all nations and all peoples. The times are changing. Times have always been changing. But the real change for Christianity in America is more than the erosion of beliefs and values. To sum it up, it is the very real change in the popular attitude, the increasingly official attitude 
which views that the traditional Christian belief system is itself dangerous, even immoral. Well, what then do we do? Well, this is one of two parts. Next Sunday, I'm going to address a greater length of how individual Christians and churches can practically respond. But before we do that, I'm going to follow the lead of the New Testament writers as they address the, the cultural pressures of their day, the persecutions of, the, of their day. And they would start off by reminding us of the great doctrines of our faith. First of all, they remind us what God has done for us in Christ. Psalm 78 is a psalm that chronicles the downfall of the first generation of Hebrews who were led out of Egypt. Many gave in to the pagan cultures around them. They adopted their culture's religious practices and way of life. They just wanted just to blend in. Many wilted in the face of hardship. And we know that ultimately the fear of their neighboring nations that caused them to falter just as they were about to enter Canaan. And the psalm points to the cause of the people's failure. They forgot the salvation of their God, how he had delivered them by mighty works. We need to be careful to remember what God has done for us and continues to do for us through Jesus Christ. We must recall again and again the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to Paul in in Ephesians 1. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And so we are not to forget the mighty work of Christ on that cross to deliver us from our sins. That which matters most, the eternal destiny of our souls, is that which is most secure. It is such knowledge that has sustained Christians in hostile countries through the centuries up to this very day. Now, for the moment, the future is unsure for us as our own country turns our own values against us. But even so, we belong to God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and he has guaranteed that no one can snatch us out of his hands. And so we are to be reminded of what God has done for us in Christ. We need to reflect and to think upon who God is and what that means for us. God is God the Father, the Son, the God the Holy Spirit, the, the, the blessed and mysterious Trinity. He's the sovereign God whose word does not return to him empty. As he says in Isaiah 55, It shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so, when we are told that God elected us before the foundation of the world, that he purposed our salvation and sanctification, 
when we are told that he purposed to unite all things in him, things in heaven and, and things on earth, then know this, God's will will be done. I hear periodically how concerned we must be for the church's survival and that of the gospel. Survival, the passing on is just uh, of, the, of the faith is just a generation away. Now, we mean by that that the survival of any single church or how widely the gospel is accepted at, at any point in time, that there's truth in that statement. But understand clearly that it is God's will for the gospel to spread to all nations, for the church to be established in all nations. And so it will. No Supreme Court decision, no terrorist organization, no culture, no nation can thwart the will of God. And so I would leave you with this question. The more urgent question is not how do we respond to our culture, but how do we respond to our God? Will we let the fear of man lead us to compromise our beliefs? Or if not our beliefs, will we let fear lead us to adopt the ways of the culture, to compromise, so in some way to defend ourselves or, or to combat our culture? Proverbs 29:25 has many, Proverbs has many wise sayings. But note this one in 29, verse 25. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. When the fear of man takes hold of us, it is then that we are in the greatest danger. Remember, remember that whoever trusts in the Lord is safe in him. We give you thanks, our God, for that word to us. Whoever trusts in you is safe. Whatever goes on about us, whatever takes place around us, what matters is that we remain faithful to you. What can man do to us? We are to trust in you, knowing that you will provide, knowing that you will carry out your will, knowing that whatever promises you have made, you will will fulfill. May we wait patiently and trust in you through all things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.